0: Ambulance 75-year-old male vaccine 21 Silver Hollow Road. Mm-hmm. Green Road, and Cross-Patch Road. Male. Back pain. Hi, welcome to Push To Medic, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. This podcast was created to build a bridge between the knowledge gained in the classroom and the clinical setting. So thanks for listening. Sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome back, guys, to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. I'm your host, Jaron. This week, we're going to go over RSI, or as I like to call it when I got out of school, really scary intubation, because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. So we practice these procedures. We make the decision. We sedate. We paralyze. We intubate. They make it seem so easy in school. And like low-funded paramedic schools, we just threw the drugs up on the lap and say we pushed them. There was no time constraint, there was no proper intubation, there was really no proper skill to this. Um, I don't know about you guys, but my school brushed over RSI like it was just another simple procedure. Although pretty simple in theory, it's I think it's one of the more difficult procedures we have to do, just due to the complexity of drugs and having a lot of different skills in one place. So knowing all that, it made it really scary, and I think scary for others in my class, but uh, we actually learned RSI just a couple weeks before the final exam because of just how our, our class went. I think the only advantage to not really knowing what I was doing uh, was that my service was not able to RSI. That whole Pretty much that whole side of the state is not allowed to RSI, so I didn't have to do it, so I felt like I didn't really need to know it. But that's not good for you as a clinician or for your patients. And what we mean by RSI is a rapid sequence intubation. Depending on your protocols, it could be called something different. I know there's DSI as delayed sequence intubation and uh, DAI for drug assisted intubation. So anytime you're giving a sedative paralytic um, to intubate, you're going to be basically performing an RSI, even though it's not going to be rapid. And that's what we're going to go over. This is not a rapid procedure anymore. It's a very thought out, precise, and shouldn't be rapid at all. So there's always been a bit of controversy whether this was ever better for the patient or not, and I think that's due to the complexity and just the longer time it takes to facilitate an inpatient while using sedatives and paralytics. Uh, Personally, I think this all just comes down to the action to initiate and the preparation. I don't think it takes really that much longer to secure an airway as long as you're prepared and you know what you're doing and you're ready to do it when the time comes multiple studies have shown to have higher mortality rates in RSI patients, and they just have this this mislabeled procedure as bad or harmful. And I think it's just harmful if it's a high risk, low frequency kind of thing. It's a failure to stay competent. The procedure's kind of rare. I've only done it twice. Um, I know we only do it maybe maybe under 10 times a year uh, at the agency I work with now, and I'm not totally solid on those numbers. So due to the being a high risk, low frequency kind of thing, uh, your your providers are not able to practice enough if it's just up to the training officer. They're not innovating people every day. So it's something kind of hard to say competent at. And the airway management part of it is just one half. Uh, there's still the whole pharmacological part of RSI. If you don't remember your onset durations or even how these drugs work, it can be really stressful when you get into that situation where you need to sedate somebody and paralyze somebody. Um, That's kind of scary if you think about it. You're basically paralyzing somebody and you have to breathe for them. Their diaphragm, lungs, nothing, nothing works now. They're alive, but you need to breathe for them. So that can be pretty intimidating. So due to that, low frequency of this. uh, I personally stay familiar with all the equipment that we use. I seek out as much training as possible. I'm a huge airway guy to begin with, so anytime I find something local or even if I have to drive to it, doesn't matter to me. Um, As long as it's not too expensive, I try to go to it. Uh, The more training you have by different people, the better you're going to be. So, Unfortunately, paramedics fall on the bottom of the totem pole for Practicing innovations. Uh, I wasn't even allowed to go in the OR in school, so I'd never had live innovations until I was actually out in the field, um, which is kind of scary, but I got through it and I, I tend to innovate not regularly, but enough these days. My agency only requires annual testing and your initial three live innovations. After that, it can be really difficult to obtain these innovations. And if you're not practicing, Uh, different techniques or even practicing your drug dosages. Like I said, this can be really stressful when this time comes. So what we're going to go over in this episode is basically some indications on why we would RSI. Um, These are going to be based off of my agency's protocols uh, just because it's easier for me. Just look up your own protocols and most of them should match, but if they're any different, please just follow yours. We'll go over a little bit of the Uh, drug classifications where we'll start out with our sedatives or induction agents, paralytics, and then what to do afterwards. And, you know, unless I'm in front of you, I can't teach you how to intubate, but that's just one side of the spectrum in this whole RSI thing is knowing how to intubate correctly uh, using your, your positioning and your prepping, but also this pharmacological side. You really need to know these medications and how they work to really facilitate a smooth RSI. So like I said, if these are any different from your protocols, uh, please follow yours. But basically our indications are anyone that's, we have a failure to oxygenate, we're unable to get their SATs up, a failure to ventilate. Um, If you have an airway compromiser, the patient now has a failure to protect their own airway. Think of a stroke or a seizure. Uh, A big one is being old enough. You have to be at least 12 years of age to be RSID in this area. I know that differs in a lot of areas, but that's just ours. And then finally, uh, unable to auctionate above 93% by any other means. So obviously, if you were able to bag them or put down a King or LMA, uh, you wouldn't need to RSI, but that's one of our indications. And basically, con- contraindications or anything opposite of that. If we're able to do all that, we shouldn't need to RSI. And if they're less than 12 So the first step in really becoming confident, putting that ego aside and taking away the fear of RSI is your preparation and knowing what you're about to do. It's not scary if you plan things out. If you haven't listened to my PPE of airway management episode, I recommend you go back and listen to that one after this. Um, It'll kind of lay out more of the couple things I'm going to talk about in just a few minutes. Uh, With RSI, they mentioned the nine P's. I like that too, but I think I cover everything in the PPE of airway management. The nine P's uh, stand for plan, prep, protect, position, pre-oxygenate, pretreat, paralysis, placement, and post-manage. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of stuff to remember. I'm not going to sit there and try, it out and try to count nine P's on my fingers before I even do this. This is something that so should actually be just practiced with you and your partner or you or whoever you work with on a daily basis, uh, just to become second nature in your head. So when you make that decision, you're immediately grabbing things, laying them out, just how you would do it in a real life situation. I really harp on the preparation and the pre of this process and any airway management. You need to be prepared and you need to pre If you have a first responder on scene or somebody that's already bagging the patient, that's great. You teach them the right way to do it. They can pre-oxygenate your patient and then take that cognitive load off your mind so you don't have to worry about it. As long as you trust them, which you should, and teach them the proper way, you shouldn't have to boggle your mind down with pre-oxygenation. While that's going on, you need to prep. You need to have everything laid out. I go over this in that other episode. I'm not talking about just having what you usually use in your hands and laid out in front of you. I'm talking about extra end title, extra 10 CCs, multiple backup procedures, uh, already finding your landmarks to crike and maybe even cleaning it or drawing a line of on their neck and saying, that's where I'm going to cut. That's where I'm going to put a hole in the neck and letting everybody know that having that right there by your side, because when things go South and although you've prepared, you can't prepare for everything if you need to crack somebody, you're ready to go. You need a backup, you have it right there. Whatever you need is at your disposable and not in the bag somewhere. So I really can't stress that enough, and especially in this procedure, because we're not just intubating somebody that doesn't have a respiratory drive at all. We're intubating somebody that's still breathing that we just init- or eventually need to take that away and do it for them because they can no longer do it effectively. We're not playing the games when we're pushing paralytics, especially some of these, which last up to an hour. So definitely prep everything. Next, let's touch on uh, pre-oxygenation just for a minute. Um, I really go over this as a lot as well. If you don't know anything about the oxyhemoglobin curve, you, you need to study that. Um, it's something you need to know. I may do an episode about it. It's pretty complex. I can try to break it down simple. Uh, I didn't understand it when I graduated. There are no questions about it on the test. We were told that, so... No one studied. These are things that come out throughout your career that you realize you actually do need to know. So pre-oxygenation on healthy adults. We have a DSAT time around eight minutes. That's healthy. That's without lung issues. If you are intubating somebody that has healthy lungs and has the DSAT time around eight minutes, you're probably in the OR and you probably are not a paramedic and you don't have to worry about that. Uh, we don't innovate healthy adults. We usually have somebody that's hemodynamically unstable or they're just crashing right in front of us and we definitely don't have eight minutes so our sick patients are going to desat a lot faster so we need to pre for at least three minutes i prefer up to five uh, research says that works best like i said this is not a rapid procedure so go ahead and just get them on that high flow nasal cannula do the two-handed bag technique make sure they are properly pre one thing you need to think about is, you know, our healthy adults desat in eight minutes. That's cool. But like I said, we don't have healthy adults. Think of your obese patients. That curve is a lot steeper. So we're basically cutting that time in half. They desat from three to four minutes. And also around that time mark are our pediatrics. I know I said we can't RSI pediatrics in our county at least, but think about your your protocols. If you're allowed to, do that increased metabolism, they're going to burn right through all that oxygen their DSAT time is going to be around four minutes as well. So we've prepped our patient, we've prepped our equipment, and we're pre-auctioning. Is there anything else we need to do before we start pushing drugs? But look at your patient. Look at your vital signs. What kind of patient do you have? I think Scott Langart, uh came up with this one. Might have been Rich Levitan as well. RSI stands for Resuscitative Sequence Innovation. We resuscitate our patient first. If we intubate a hemodynamically unstable patient, we're going to put them in a full arrest. Uh, That's proven. So remember, if your patient just has a crap blood pressure, they're just not stable enough, make sure you just bag them. Just do what you have to do to get by until you can resuscitate them, whether that be fluids, pressors, um, whatever. Just make sure they're hemodynamically unstable as best as you can before you initiate this. Innovation, because some of these drugs that we're going to be given can really be harmful to the cardiovascular system and can totally tank them. All right, guys, let's get into our first drugs we're going to be using. Uh, That's our induction agents or our sedatives. So I think I was taught in school the load principle where we uh, push a little bit of each drug beforehand just to give that therapeutic effect. I don't think anyone does that anymore if it's in your protocols, go ahead and do it. But I think that's kind of been thrown out the window. Where we push fentanyl beforehand, we push a little defis- defasciul. I can never say that word. Defasciculation dose. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, we push a little bit of that to get rid of the fasciculations and from the sucks. Don't know if that's really used anymore. I know we don't use it, and any other county I've ever worked in does not use it. But we'll get right into it. So. I think the most widely used one and most versatile sedative that we come to first is going to be Entomidate. I'm going to go ahead and name off some dosages. These may not be your dosages, but keep in mind, just follow whatever dosages your protocol book sets. but these are mine. So that's going to be 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Like I said, this is going to be a versatile sedative. It's got a very short onset and a moderately short duration. I've seen from 10 to 15 seconds onset from about 5 to 15 minutes on the duration. So this is a non-barbiturate hypnotic and commonly used in uh, elective procedures for conscious sedation. It's more or less healthy for your, not healthy I don't want to say, but safer on the cardiovascular system. So your hemodynamically unstable patients, God forbid if you actually have to intubate one and you're not able to resuscitate, it's going to be safe on them. It's not going to tank their blood pressure. Uh, it's really going to have no effect at all. So really the only downside of Atomidate is just the way it works. So it basically suppresses the corticosteroid synthesis in our adrenal cortex, which in turn can cause adrenal insufficiency. So we shouldn't be able to see this in the pre-hospital world. We shouldn't be constantly using Atomidate. Uh, we have other sedatives we can use for post intubation But I can see this uh, being a problem in the ICU or uh, somewhere else in the hospital. So that's where that would play in. But just remember, you know, anybody with adrenal insufficiency, it may not work as well as somebody with not. Um, And I know there's been some caution voiced with septic patients, but, you know, get an airway or use a different one. I wouldn't worry so much about that. So next, we're going to have another really common medication. Um, It's a benzodiazepine, and that's going to be Versed. Uh, The dosage we use is 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, This one's going to have a little bit longer onset from about a minute to a minute and a half and a little bit longer duration from about 15 to 25 minutes. Like I said, this is all going to depend on your patient, but that's about what the average is. So this basically increases your GABA levels, which in turn causing a decrease in action potential of your neurotransmitters. Blah, 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 a lot of big words. Basically causes sedation and hypnotic effects. So it's amnesic. It doesn't have any pain properties, so don't think pushing Versed is going to knock them out and take the pain away. It's simply just amnesic, puts them to sleep, has a little hypnotic effect to it, and that's about it. Uh, More or less safe to use except in our... Lower MAP and BP patients, it does have a negative effect on the cardiovascular system and it also depresses respiratory drive. So, we want to be a little bit more cautious in pushing these in our patients that are depending on that respiratory drive or are depending on that hemodynamic status at that time. So, this would not be my first line choice for a really bad asthmatic. God forbid I have to. In a beta RSI, an asthmatic or a uh, COPD or something like that, and they're standing on that last leg at a respiratory rate of 35 to 40. I don't want to push Versed to knock them out because I'm going to knock out that respiratory drive and potentially have a fuller rest on my hands. And nobody wants that. So, next we're going to have the uh, wonder drug, which a lot of people think is, and that's going to be ketamine 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram. Decent onset of 45 to 60 seconds uh, lasts about the same as Versed up to 20-25 minutes. Uh, This is not a new drug. It's fairly new to us in pre-hospital. It's used a lot in the RSI and DSI protocols. I know some places are allowed to use it for combative patients. We're only allowed to use it for combative patients if they need airway. So that's a fine line that I'm not willing to dance around right now, but... Uh, we can use it for combative patients if they need an airway. So it's a NMDA antagonist, which basically is responsible for all the hallucinogenic, uh, dissociative, amnesic properties of this medication. The cool thing about it is it allows for adequate preoxygenation because it does not depress the respiratory system. Uh, that means you can give it to your patient. They'll be out of it, but they'll still maintain that respiratory drive they had which works really well in our COPD asthma patients. Um, And plus a little bonus, it has bronchodilator effects. So this is really good for somebody that uh, you really don't want to intubate in the first place that is leaning on that leg of their respiratory drive. Another little bonus ketamine gives you is that it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. So this does not raise blood pressure. You will not go from 80 to 100 with this medication but it won't affect it. It won't drop it. So your hemodynamically unstable patients this is going to be a pretty safe medication for them. But you also have to think, if you have a really bad trauma that you're RSIing, uh, they've already released all their catecholamines, their bank is empty, and there's nothing to stimulate, it's really not going to work. So you still might have a small danger with your hemodynamically unstable patients, but more or less it's going to be safer than some of the other medications. And if you're still stuck on that ICP boat, uh, you might as well get off it because it's left a long time ago. Studies have now disproven that theory that it does not increase ICP. So you're good there in your head, head injury patients. All is good to go. And last we're going to talk about is something I've only used once. I don't have a lot of experience with, uh, so I can't say much about it. Uh, But that's propofol. We don't use it a lot in pre-hospital, actually, at all. Uh, And I've only seen it used on the critical care ground truck that I work with once, um, and it sucked. Uh, Going down bumpy roads, even though it's pumping through a line, uh, we still had intermittent times where the patient would come out of sedation. Um, It was just bad all the way around. It seems to work really good in the hospital, but on the ground side, not so much. Uh, It works very similar to the Versed, uh, increasing your GABA levels and causing that sedation. It's very short-acting, so you're looking at an onset of 15 to 30 seconds, but it only lasts about 5 to 10 minutes. So this is going to be something that I would not push dose. Um, Strictly pump. This is also going to be a medication where you're going to want some pretty in-depth monitoring. It's got harmful effects on your cardiovascular system, all around. So it causes severe hypotension, where it can, and also some irregular rhythms. Um, it's also going to decrease your blood flow, your renal blood flow, sorry, uh, just due to that hypotension. So you might see some decreased urine output as well. Uh, so this, I know they use a lot in the ICUs, but it's better there, not in the back of a truck. That's just my opinion. But don't say I didn't mention it. There's That's about all I have on propofol for you. So we've prepped our patient, we're pre-oxygenated, we've most importantly resuscitated our patient, and we've pushed our initial drug, which is our sedation. So now our patient is asleep, but we still can't open their mouth. They're clenched. They have got a TBI. Well, that's when our paralytics come in. Um, A lot of places won't let you simply use a sedative to intubate somebody. Um, A lot of times people have a gag reflex and you can't do it anyway. Paralytics are really important in this. You have basically full control to do whatever you want, but keep that in mind. You have full control to do whatever you want, so you have to do everything. They can no longer breathe. So we're going to go over three different paralytics. They're all pretty important. I have experience with two of them. The last one, not so much, but we'll mention it. And first up we have is uh, succinylcholine, or succs. So dosage for us is 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram, this is really widely used, but it has a ton of contraindications. Um, I think the plus thing of succinylcholine is that it's got a very short onset and a very short duration. So you're looking at 45 to 60 seconds on your onset and only 8 to 10 minutes on duration. 8 to 10 minutes is really nice, but it can also be really bad as well, especially coming to your mindset. So the whole 8-10 to minute thing, if you're really close to the hospital, you have someone that has a neurological emergency and they need to do a neuro exam on arrival, you can use just your post-sedation to keep them comfortable and the paralytic will wear off and they can do a proper neuro exam. The one thing I don't like about the 8 to minute is just purely personal opinion. And from what I've heard is people say, Well, I use succinylcholine because it only lasts 8 to 10 minutes. So if I don't get the intubation, I can just bag through the paralytic and they'll be fine. Well, yeah, but what are you going to do next? What's your next plan? If you're prepared in the first place, you wouldn't need another. You wouldn't need to bag through the paralytic. You would have another plan in mind. So don't just depend on choosing your paralytic due to this short Uh acting paralysis time just because they're only paralyzed for 10 minutes and then they'll regain uh, function. Don't depend on that. Have a plan. That's just my small opinionated soapbox. Um, But some bad things about succinylcholine is just the multiple contraindications. So if you're in the situation where you need to facilitate a drug-assisted airway, are you really going to get that full history that you need? Probably not. And they have so many contraindications with succinylcholine, it can be dangerous towards the patient. Basically, anyone that's hyperkalemic. So malignant hyperthermia, burns that are greater than 24 hours, crush injuries, neuromuscular disorders, lumby Indians, uh, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, The only plus side of this is that short-acting paralysis. But just keep in mind that the list of contraindications is just forever long And if you're in any doubt, I would go ahead and switch to a different paralytic. So some other paralytics we have. Uh, Next up is ROC or rocoronium. That's 2 milligrams per kilogram. Easy to remember. About the same onset, about a minute, 60 seconds, just a much longer duration. You have to really get that in your mind. Uh, A duration of 45 to 50 minutes. So when you push this, you have to have an airway, whether that be a tube a blind insertion, or a hole in the neck. You need to get a tube in their throat and provide them with oxygen because you've paralyzed them for almost an hour. Uh, So definitely be prepared. Keep that in the back of your mind when you push these long-acting paralytics. I know a lot of times uh, protocols say only give this when there's contraindications to giving succinylcholine, but you don't always know those contraindications, so you can be safer using the rock instead of the sucks. if you're on the way to the hospital and it's a very short ride and they need neuro assessment, uh, this is not going to be ideal, but they also have an antidote or a reversal agent for it. So keep that in mind too. Uh, it's not all end all be all with a rock. I know this is used a little more in the ICU situations. Um, not so much in pre-hospital 911, but I know rock is really big in the flight community. So it's good paralytic. Don't let the 45 to 50-minute act time worry about your care. Uh, if you need it, you need it. Push it. Along with those uh, long-lasting, paral- long-lasting paralytics, we have uh, VEC or Norcaron. Uh, it's also long-acting. It's not seen much in pre-hospital. If I'm not mistaken, you have to reconstitute it. I believe the dose was 0.1 milligrams per kilogram when we had it. It's a very slow onset, a very long-acting. Uh, we don't have it anymore. Really, can't tell you too much about it. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I think it's kind of been phased out, other than hospital. So there's your three paralytics. You have succinylcholine, short-acting paralytic, rock, and then vec. Uh, like I said, we don't see vec too much in the pre-hospital world anymore. If you do see it, just brush up on it. One thing I want to say again. I just have to preach it on these long-acting paralytics that you need to use caution. You need to have a contingency backup plan, and that needs to be voiced. This whole thing needs to be voiced from from time to uh, initiate the RSI all the way till you give hospital report. You've got to communicate in this situation. So with long-acting paralytics, make sure you have backup plans and that CRITE kit ready because you need a tube with this. You can't bag somebody effectively for 45 minutes. That's, that's absurd. Uh, so just when you push these, make sure you're you're establishing and preparing yourself to uh get a good airway. So once you have your sedation on board and you're paralytic and you've executed your intubation and you've secured your tube, next comes post sedation yeah, you, you can't just leave them there. I don't know how many times I've asked for uh post sedation medications from the e r in a report, and they give me rock vec or The last time they had sucks, which was more than 10 minutes ago. Do not get caught up in that. A paralytic is not a sedative. Uh, You need to give post sedation, having a tube down your throat. I heard kind of hurts and you don't want to remember any of this. So um, I talk about, I may make this into a podcast. Um, I got it from camp echo about a month ago, but building a foundation of sedation using that fentanyl, that versed, that propofol, whatever you have, and load them up, using the opiates for pain control and the benzos for sedation. Those two together are going to build that foundation to keep that patient comfortable. You don't want them following commands unless you need a neuroassessment or you're with a doc and that needs to be facilitated. Don't worry about that hypotension. That can be fixed. You're not going to not give post-sedation medications because they're hypotensive. You're going to go ahead and fix that hypotension with uh, pressors, a uh, fluid challenge. But don't don't be mean to your patients. Uh, load them up with that fentanyl. Load them with that Versed. I've never had a patient not like that. Uh, you can tell with their blood pressure and their heart rate if they are adequately sedated. Also, if they're staring at you or squeezing your hand following commands, they're not sedated. They need some Versed. So that's a quick brush over RSI. I'm going to add a few things in the show notes, especially a timeline. Um, It's really important to get this timeline down. You don't want to be in your last minute of sedation while you're prepping your paralytic. You don't want to paralyze your patient while you're intubating them and have them not sedated. That's extremely traumatic for the patient. So just some key points is really prep and plan this decision. Announce it make checklists do whatever you can to make this extremely smooth and practice. You have to practice and you have to keep up on these. If there's going to be a good conference or a talk about airway management or drug assisted innovation, uh, see if you can attend on that. If your agency doesn't pay for it, go anyway. My agency pays for nothing that I do. I do it all because I want to, and I want to be a better provider. So Take advantage of those events in these talks. I've learned a lot just from going to these conferences uh, just about this topic in particular, especially your hemodynamically unstable ones. So this will let you be more confident when this uh, time comes. Next, uh, before you uh, pre-oxygenate your patient, start that resuscitation if they need be. You don't want to be intubating hemodynamically unstable patients. That can That's just asking for a patient to arrest. Once you intubate your patient, Follow up with sedation medications. Build that foundation of comfort for your patient. So I will link down the show notes, a little timeline on how you really should start your RSI procedure, starting with pre-oxygenating five minutes prior, all the way up to induction, intubation, etc. I'll also put in a few articles about uh, one of my favorites, no DSAT, about properly pre-oxygenating the patient and a few on uh, hypotension in the RSI realm. All right, so I hope that cleared up any questions or took the fear out of uh, the whole RSI procedure. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. Also, I'll be posting a few new things up on the blog on the website, uh, www.pushdosemedic.com. You can also find some merchandise and some new stickers there as well. So if you need anything Just contact me and that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.